Hello, and welcome to Theories of Change, a podcast about climate change and the various strategies and approaches to addressing this global challenge. I'm your host, Sarah Ladislaw. Each month, we will talk with experts about how to get from where we are today to a more manageable climate for future generations. We have made a global choice about our collective future direction, a sustainable model and world. But the task now is to help individuals, communities, businesses, investors, governments make the local choices that are consistent with those goals. Today, we're joined by Archie Young. Archie has been the lead climate negotiator for the UK since 2016, overseeing climate negotiations in the UNFCCC, the EU, G7, and G20. He's also the UK's Director of Negotiations and Ambition for COP26. I spoke with Archie about the ongoing importance of international climate negotiations as we approach the five-year anniversary of the Paris Climate Agreement. We discuss what issues are left to be tackled in the Paris rulebook and how the issue of climate change has expanded to touch so many more aspects of local and global affairs over the past few years. We also discuss what COVID-19 has meant for the UNFCCC negotiation process, which delayed the meeting by one year until November 2021. We talked about how the UK's strong track record of climate leadership can serve as an example for other countries, and how to use the next 12 months to drive greater ambition and action through government and non-governmental activities. We hope you enjoy the discussion. Archie, it's really wonderful to have you here with us today. Thank you so much for the invitation. I'm looking forward to the conversation. Great. So we're going to get into what the UNFCCC Conference of Parties that was supposed to be this year, it will now be next year, all of the sort of machinations of what's going on in its absence and what you hope to achieve over the next year and what we hope to achieve within the context of that COP. But I wanted to start out because you've been working on the issue of climate change within a negotiations context, but also domestic policy, international policy for a while And we always ask our listeners on this podcast, how do you characterize in your own mind the issue of climate change and where we stand today relative to what we need to do to create a stable atmosphere for future generations? Thanks, Sarah. Yes, as you say, I've been fortunate, privileged enough to look at climate change from both an international and domestic perspective. And I think from that collective experience, I think actually it really boils climate change down to a global issue of local choices. So in our daily lives, in our work, in government policy, we are constantly faced with choices. And more often than not, we can choose between a more or a less sustainable option. And as a global community, through the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change, through the Paris Agreement, we have made a global choice about our collective future direction, a sustainable model and world. But the task now is to help individuals, communities, businesses, investors, governments make the local choices that are consistent with those goals. And it also means being really clear about where actually there still aren't good enough choices on the table and what we need to do to enable that. That might be about improving the regulatory environment, the enabling environment. It might be about behaviour change, encouraging the innovation to fill gaps or support to remove barriers. But I think I start from an optimistic position that most people want to protect the planet that sustains us and protect each other from future risks. So how can we help each other to make the right choices to do that? 
That's an excellent sort of cooperative frame that gets in a lot of the dynamics that are hard to simplify in this challenge, right? Can I just ask, where do you feel as though we've made the most progress in that basket of activity? Is it on the diplomatic and political side? Is it on the technological side? Does one thing stand out to you more than others? I think that I would characterize it as different elements that are all trying to keep pace with each other. And as somebody who is committed to tackling climate change and accelerating action on climate change, it's a case of how can we use progress in one to build confidence and accelerate action in the other. So I'd point to the fact that uh, several years ago, before the Paris Agreement, there was a sense that actually governments needed to set that clear future direction in order to give the confidence to businesses, investors, etc., to make the choices they needed to make in order to chart a course towards that path for themselves. Paris was signed and that gave that signal. And now I think what we're seeing in many cases is actually that private sector community, in some cases going further and faster and in a race to more comprehensive and more ambitious commitments. And that's really helpful to then give the confidence to governments now who are facing the task of updating their commitments, coming forward with new enhanced plans that actually governments can feel more emboldened by what their private sector is doing. But I would say it's not just about the private sector and the government, of course. It is about communities. It is about that civil society. It is about the human pressure. It is about all the activists and activities that are going on around the world as well, which keep this issue at the forefront of global consciousness. Yeah, I completely agree. It's a much more sophisticated ecosystem of climate awareness and action than it was, you know, even 10 years ago. So I certainly agree with you on that. I want to turn to the role of the UK in this particular conference of party. It's a big deal to be the host for one of these. And you probably appreciate, along with your colleagues, how much work that means, uh, particularly because you have an extra year of activity until you get to the time of the COP. I wanted to just point out, you know, talk a little bit about the UK's record of activity on climate, because it is something that you all have put forward as not in a bragging sort of way, but as as having a very sound track record for doing a lot of things. I was looking at this beforehand, you're the fastest country in the G20 to decarbonize since 2000. You cut your emissions more than 40% since 1990. That's the fastest rate for G7 countries. You're the first country to pass laws for net zero carbon emissions, the largest producer of offshore wind, just a whole host of things that, you know, until you sort of see it all together, you don't appreciate the UK's leadership role in that way. My question is, you know, other than making people aware of what you should rightfully be proud of, how are you seeking to leverage what the UK has done into action or the agenda for the upcoming conference of parties? Well, first of all, thank you, Sarah, for stealing all my top lines in terms of uh, UK (laughs) leadership. And I hope, I really hope that we don't brag or preach about this, because I think you're right. We do have a strong track record, but we're also very aware that the circumstances look very different in different places. So just because we have been able to make the scale of emissions reductions and the pace of change that we have doesn't mean that that is immediately replicable everywhere else. I would say that the foundation in the UK for the progress that we have made is probably threefold. It was the science, it was our legislation, and then it was the public. So on the science, we have a history of 
our policies being informed by scientific advisory committees. So, for example, there used to be the Royal Commission on Environmental Pollution, then the Committee on Climate Change. And those bodies have provided the scientific basis for government decision making. And then that has been reflected in government legislation. The Climate Change Act in 2008 was a classic example. And also, as you point out last year with our legislation, which enshrined a target of net zero greenhouse gases by 2050. And actually, that last target is a really interesting example of how that has progressed. In 2000, the aim was 60% reduction by 2050. Then in 2008, with the Climate Change Act, that was moved to an 80% reduction. And now we have a net zero 100% reduction. And it's really interesting the way that moving from 80% to 100% changes the conversation, because I'd say that quite a few who may have thought they were in the 20% that was allowed to continue with business as usual, everybody now recognises that actually everybody is now part of this. And the public, having an informed, engaged public, has created that political and that commercial space for action. And particularly, I would say, that political space for bipartisan action. The fact that across the political spectrum, there is support for climate action. Now, how do we leverage that globally? Well, it's a really pertinent time for giving that confidence to governments about the future direction and about the possibility and achievability of ambitious climate action. So if I provide a bit of context for COP26, we are here five years after the Paris Agreement. It is a time when countries agreed that we would come forward with new enhanced, what we call nationally determined contributions at the national targets for emissions reductions. We also said that we would come forward with long-term strategies. So that's our plan up to 2050. We said that we would come forward with new adaptation and resilience plans. And also, this is the first year for donors setting out clear, predictable, future-looking finance commitments as well. And we need to make sure that we provide the political momentum and political space for countries to come forward, but also that we do the hard work in the dark rooms of the convincing, the encouraging, the support as well, such that actually that sense of collective action, collective responsibility, recognising and sensitive to the different national circumstances enables everybody to put their best foot forward. And despite COVID, we have been determined to provide that political forum. So that's why we are co-hosting a virtual leaders event in December, where countries are being invited to come forward with those new commitments. But also, we're continuing the work on the negotiations, we're continuing the work through our five campaigns to give the confidence to coalitions who want to go further faster. And we're continuing to build those links with non-state actors, as we call them. So businesses, investors, community who are committed to making that action go faster. Are there other concrete implications to how you're conceiving of climate action because of the delay in the COP, because of COVID-19? I know a big theme uh, certainly here in the United States, looking out around the world is the the post-COVID recovery, you know, build back better themes, this opportunity to really take, you know, what was a nationally led process of delivering on Paris commitments and uh, within the UNFCCC auspices. And now it's a bit bigger than that too, though, right? It's really about thinking about how do you 
infuse the world with recovery dollars that will be necessary in a post-COVID environment, but could also and hopefully will contribute to climate solutions. Has that changed your thinking about the structure of what is necessary at this moment and how you position the COP? There was a very sort of clear direction for what we needed to do next, right? I mean, that was the point of Paris was we've got this process and we're going to meet the commitments and it's about ratcheting up ambition. But all of a sudden we have kind of a shock to the system, which is COVID-19, which can fit in that framework. But it also adds a completely other dimension to it, which could just be much bigger than what we had hoped for. We haven't seen that yet, but it could be a bigger sort of shock to the international system. How do you see that feeding into what you're paying attention to? Like, which is, is it going to change countries' contributions? Would China have done what China just did, you know, without the, you know, like some of those kind of speculative things? Obviously, COVID has had a devastating effect on so many individuals around the world. And we've seen it in friends and family and colleagues around the world. So sometimes it can be awkward to talk about the opportunity that COVID presents. But nonetheless, I think given what we are trying to achieve, it is fair to say that there are opportunities in particularly when you look at the stimulus packages that many governments around the world are already putting in place and delivering. Those are uh, in many cases unprecedented in scale. And it goes back to my earlier point about the choices that we face and governments face those choices and they face a choice as to how they want that stimulus to be delivered and what kind of time frame they're looking at, and what kind of sustainable society they want to build. And in that respect, it has to be an opportunity. And we have to seize that opportunity as well. And as devastating as COVID has been, that opportunity is actually very timely, because the Paris Agreement has put in place the five-year ratchet of increasing national commitments. But at the same time, there were many critics who said that actually that five-year ratchet was inconsistent with the urgency of action that was required in order to get us on track for the goals that we have agreed in the Paris Agreement. And particularly when you look at the IPCC special report on 1.5 degrees from 2018, that shows actually the real acceleration of climate action that is required over the next 10 years if we are to have a chance of meeting those goals. So I think it is timely in that respect particularly when you look at what I call the one, two, three. So since the start of the industrial period, the world has already warmed by one degree. We have committed in the Paris Agreement to limit global warming to two degrees and best efforts to 1.5. And the IPCC report shows just actually even at two degrees how devastating some of those impacts will already be. And we know that the current commitments on the table take us to over three. So yes, ratcheting up is necessary and is good, But equally, if it is only incremental each time, that may not be fast enough to get us actually on track with the goals that we have set ourselves. And that's where this opportunity of stimulus, but also not just the government action. I heard somebody term it as the great reset. Is this an opportunity for all of us as individuals to reconnect with what matters, to reconnect with nature, to reconnect and ask ourselves the question, actually, what is important to me? And how does that then filter through? to the choices that we all have to make. Yeah, and I think it's an important point that you make. I think we had uh, Ross Shaw from Rockefeller Foundation have just declared that they're going to give a billion dollars to COVID recovery, but also microgrids in developing economies for energy access and the purposes of fighting climate change. 
And again, it was all about sort of, you know, making the moment even bigger and rising to it. And I think that that's a, a big theme that is being felt in a lot of these discussions. So hopefully we can live up to it. I want to take you back a minute, though, because you had sort of talked about the things that needed to be accomplished within the context of our expectations for the Paris Agreement, you know, the NDCs, the long-term targets, the adaptation and resilience plans, the financial commitments. Can you talk with us about your views about what a delay of a year is going to mean for the agendas and give your assessment of how that might impact our expectations for resolution on some of those things? So... The delay of a year was necessary given the circumstances. It is not without its challenges. The fact that through 2020, we will not have had any formal negotiations. It has obviously made some of the engagement, the discussions that need to take place in order to share learning or to understand positions and and move things forward. It has uh, made that more challenging. COVID-19 has placed a severe strain on many government systems and implementing agencies around the world as well, who have rightly focused on health first and foremost and uh, the immediate urgent requirements of dealing with the pandemic. So in that respect, it is not without its challenges. Equally, I think there is an opportunity, partly through what we've just been talking about in terms of reset and in terms of stimulus and what that means. I think also potentially some time to look again at actually how the governmental, the UNFCCC process connects with the real world agenda and health and climate and how it addresses the demands and expectations of the public. In terms of some of the practicalities of the delay, the UNFCCC Bureau, which is in the absence of a COP, is trying to provide the direction to the process and that includes the current presidency, us as incoming presidency, but also representatives of the different regional groups. Uh, That bureau has been clear that the postponement of COP26 cannot mean the postponement of climate action, and that collectively we will aim to maximise progress and minimise delay. And in that light, we are doing things that we've never done before. The range of virtual discussions, informal exchanges that we're (laughs) undertaking, the different novel and innovative ways that we are trying to bring people together and actually take advantage of if this isn't a negotiation, then maybe we can leave our negotiating positions at the door and engage on the substance and understand each other and understand the national interests that are informing positions. So I think there are some potential around that. Also, Alongside the negotiations, like I said, we're bringing part- countries together and political momentum to with their new commitments. But also we, as incoming presidency, we identified five campaigns on energy transitions, on adaptation and resilience, on finance, on nature and on zero emission vehicles. And some of those, of course, there's overlap to some of the formal COP agenda, but actually We really saw those campaigns as an opportunity to bring together government and non-government actors and have a different kind of conversation, which is about coalitions of the willing seeking to go further, faster and real world practical solutions and opportunities to enable that. Not necessarily what is the collective 197 parties negotiation on how we do that, but actually how can a few 
be demonstrated projects, if you like, as to what is possible in those areas. Absolutely sensitive to and respectful to the importance of that multilateral process with the 197 parties, but recognising that actually, if we want to show what's possible, sometimes you need a few who want to go further, faster to prove to others that it is not just possible, but actually in their interests as well. And what do you expect to come out of the campaigns? Is there sort of set expectations of announcements or agreements or pilot projects or whatever the case might be? What kind of things do you think will come out of that process? Across each of the campaigns, actually, that looks quite different. In some cases, yes, it will be pilot projects. In some cases, it may be declarations. It might be new programs, new coalitions. I think across each of them, it can look quite different. But for each of them, the priority really is rooting that in practical action. So I want to talk about the example of the UK and and the UK's leadership. One of the things that's interesting to me is the UK is not devoid of politics, just like the US is not devoid of politics. In some ways, it, it can look quite similar sometimes, but climate is not the same. You've been able to make much more progress, more durable progress, I guess I would say, in advancing the climate agenda within UK energy system and grounding it in legislation, all of those types of things. One of the things I I was curious about, is there something about the way that you've approached it? I was thinking in particular, the economic opportunity or the jobs aspect. You have an industrial strategy that is designed to sort of deal with this. Is there anything that you think in particular in that experience can be shared by other countries? Maybe, you know, we've got the Biden administration coming in, they're starting to talk in very similar terms to what I think kind of echoes the UK experience. But not it's not dissimilar to a lot of other countries that are seeking to make economic opportunity out of energy. Is this something you're spending a lot of time talking with other countries about? It certainly is. And uh, you're absolutely right that the economic opportunity is definitely part of the UK discourse on tackling climate change. It is no accident that our strategy for tackling climate change that we published in 2018 was called the Clean Growth strategy. It was about how we will tackle climate change, but also where the growth opportunities are from that. And the statistics in terms of the opportunities in terms of clean jobs, both domestically and globally, are very clear. When you look at the accelerated uptake of renewables, that could boost global renewable energy jobs to 42 million by 2050, which is well over 50% more than under current plans. So there are huge job and economic opportunities in this. But equally, that is only part of the picture. I think that if it is only about the economic opportunity, then I think, well, firstly, that is missing quite a lot of the moral argument and the moral case. It is also missing some of the social and human argument. What I do think it is helpful for is moving away from some of the sense of a trade-off that I think we have been facing for many years, that somehow there is a trade-off between economic growth or climate action. You mentioned earlier that the UK, we've cut our emissions by 43% since 1990. And over the same time, our GDP has grown by 75%. So it is possible to decouple the two. Now, that is easy to say at that level, but we fully recognise actually that means sometimes some very challenging local choices. And so when talking about the transition, we need to make sure that that is a transition which really brings in the communities that will be affected. And what is the comprehensive offer, policies, 
that will help to manage that transition. And that's something that really, I think, benefits from genuine global shared learning and lessons, because this is something that we're all facing. We're facing a scalar transformation of our economic models that is daunting, is necessary, um, is unprecedented, and no one has the single answer. And we need to make sure that this is a transition that actually we talk about in the negotiations, leaving no issue behind. But actually, in this case, it's about leaving no people behind. We are spending a lot of time on just transitions ourselves, because it's, it certainly seems to be an area where there's a lot of discussion, but the interpretation of what it means and how to do it in different countries and contexts is a profound challenge. And so one that we think is quite important. I think so. But also to not transition is not in itself just, I would say, yeah. in that when you look at the disproportionate impacts of climate change on the most vulnerable, and that's globally, but also within specific countries and communities. And therefore, to continue with the business as usual high carbon model is in itself not actually necessarily a just model of development. Absolutely. Well, Archie, we ask our guests the same two questions at the end of each episode. I'm actually particularly excited to ask you this one. What do you say to people who either don't think a lot about the issue of climate change or have a very different view than yours? to try and get them to think about the importance or the urgency or the accessibility? How do you talk to people who have a very divergent set of views from yours? First of all, I should probably start with a caveat, which is probably not very well, because <laughs> I am very conscious. I am a negotiator and I am fully immersed in one of the most fantastically complicated multilateral <laughs> processes with more initialisms and acronyms than most. So the first thing I always have to remember to do is actually talk in a way which is understandable. I think that's something actually we could all do better when we are talking about climate change. I think then it's about helping people to understand because, you know, there are so many different aspects of this that it's absolutely valid not to fully understand because there is virtually nobody who fully understands completely all of the climate science, all of the climate economics, all of the climate social theory. This climate change touches on so many different fields of expertise. And so actually, we have to be also honest about what we don't understand and then help others to understand, fill in their gaps of understanding. What is it? Where are the areas that they would like to understand more? But then, of course, we meet with people who are more sceptical. Then in that case, I look at that in terms of a spectrum of scepticism, because there are some who are genuinely sceptical of the science, and that is one thing. But then actually, there are a large number of people who they understand the science, they get it, but they might be sceptical of the scale of the solutions being proposed, or they might be sceptical of the role of governments in those solutions being proposed, or they may be sceptical about the likelihood of those solutions working, or how much they will cost, or what that might mean for them individually. So I think then really engaging them on that journey of trying to understand where are they on that journey, and depending on where they are on, on that spectrum, then I think that looks like a very different conversation. But like I say, you try to understand and you try to focus on hope, because that's what we all have to cling to. And also appeal to humanity. I have two small children and I'm an optimist. I like to think that we all want what's right for the future. And that's where sometimes actually moving away from climate change language is helpful. So we talk about adaptation and resilience. 
But what's that actually mean? Does that actually mean future-proofing your business? Does that actually mean planting seeds which are more likely to grow? What does that actually mean protecting your homes from Mm. extreme weather events? So let's also sometimes just use language that people understand. Very well said. What are some resources that you would recommend to people that you think are very instructive or helpful or that could be particularly helpful to people in understanding what's COP26, what's the plan, what's going on, how do I get engaged? In terms of what's happening for COP26, I would say keep your eyes out for the 12th of December. So that is the date when we will bring leaders together virtually and that is the moment when we will hopefully bring the world together with those enhanced commitments, countries coming forward with new commitments, and also set out what that means for the year ahead. In terms of other resources, I'm afraid, having just said we need to talk in a language that people understand, (laughs) some of my resources are more of the technical resources. But I actually think that people should not be scared by that and actually go straight to the source. And if you really want to understand this, then the summary for policymakers of the ICC special report is actually really well worth reading. Or even read the Paris Agreement, because when I speak to people, there are so many misconceptions actually about what the Paris Agreement does and what it is there for. And fundamentally, it is a commitment by all of us to put our best foot forward, but it is also then incumbent on all of us to do that. And hopefully COP26 will be that moment when we see countries coming forward with new ambitious commitments, and also resolving some of the elements that are still outstanding from the Paris Agreement rulebook. And it's really important that we resolve those issues so that we can unleash the potential of the Paris Agreement as it starts to be implemented. Archie, you mentioned there's unresolved issues that need to be dealt with in the rulebook that comes out of the negotiation process. What should our expectations be for that? Overall, we are aiming for a COP26 being an ambitious and an inclusive COP, which will leave no issue behind and which will bring in the voices of all those who feel marginalised and the most vulnerable and bring everybody together into that global conversation. There are some specific elements that need to be negotiated and resolved. And those include some very important issues which are part of the Paris Agreement that were due to be part of the Paris Agreement rulebook that we agreed two years ago, that the conditions weren't quite there yet, parties weren't quite ready to find the solutions on those issues. And the same applied last year, so they're on our table this year. And that includes Article 6, which is on carbon markets. It also includes common timeframes for the commitments that people are setting out. And it includes enhanced transparency framework. You know, why does that matter? Actually, all those elements are about having the comparability, the consistency and the confidence so that when you take climate action, you can be sure that others are doing the same and also where there may be opportunities elsewhere for further faster action and enabling that cooperation to make that happen. But again, being confident that that does not mean that the system is then skewed against you and that you can do that cooperation in a fair and transparent way. I think those are really important issues that we are negotiating, but also we are absolutely committed to moving forward the work on finance, on adaptation, on loss and damage, on all the other issues that are under discussion at COP26, and also being able to provide a platform for 
the real progress on gender, on indigenous peoples, on action on climate empowerment. How do we bring the youth voice in? And I think the pre-COP in Italy, which is going to have a major focus on youth, is a great example of how we are committed to bringing all those different voices to be heard in the fundamentally government-to-government multilateral process. Great resources, great insights, great conversation. Archie, thank you so much for joining us today and best of luck with the very large agenda that you have before you and everything to come the end of this year and into next year. 